Okay, back to podcast tonight, and uh, I hope everyone has had a good day and a good week so far in the Lord, and he's certainly been good to us. Uh, We've been very busy uh, as far as the business goes, and we're thankful for that. UPS picking up. Uh, Do pray for our church and our coming services, and... um, to uh, tomorrow night, uh, Brother Kevin and I will be going to look at a, a uh, possible location. Again, the efforts are always ongoing for that, and uh, we'll be just be in prayer about it. And we will inform you, or I'll inform you, uh, as as it progresses. Uh, so uh, it's it's pretty pretty good situation, hopefully. Um, but do pray about that. And just pray for the needs of the church to be met and um, God's grace and God's mercy and His long-suffering upon us. Hebrews chapter number 2. Hebrews 2. Gotten some comments, uh, messages over Hebrews 1. Seems to be something that folks have enjoyed so far. Uh, I personally have always enjoyed Hebrews. Um, very rich, very deep book of the Bible that um, that absolutely warrants more study and study from us. And so that's what we're doing. <clears throat> now, Paul continues on the theme. You remember the last time we, we opened up the introduction to Hebrews and started... Uh, talking about what the background was, and it's essentially the fact that Paul, or I, I say Paul, uh, I'm not as convinced that I'll say it that out of habit. So forgive me if you were if you listened to the last lesson, you heard me discuss the penman of Hebrews, and um, I'm not as convinced that it was Paul as I was once before. Um. I'm just not certain of it. I'm not certain that God didn't, through divine providence, leave us this this writing. But either way, the writer, the writer of this, is encouraging the people of God to go on unto perfection, to go on to maturity, to grow in grace, to experience the fullness of Christ, to not turn back. Uh, They are under heavy, heavy pressure. Uh, society, societal pressure, family pressure, uh, worldly pressure to turn back, to renounce Christianity, to renounce their their calling, to renounce uh, their salvation and, and following Jesus. And so, essentially, this entire book is is geared in that regard. The the speak and talk of angels in this book is very uh, very prominent, and one of the reasons is is much like today there has become a an infatuation or a fascination with angels. Um, there was in in this time the Jews uh, grew to be like that. Catholics are terrible, terribly is just saturated and fascinated with angels in a in an angelic worship um 
to the degree that angels, they have changed uh, what they look like from the Bible. They, they, you know, they make them look like little cherubs, little little babies, little rosy cheek, chubby cheek babies, little curly headed uh, kids. That's not an angel. It never was an angel. The Bible speaks of nothing even remotely close to that concerning angels. <clears throat> so I've went on and on and on about that. But Paul continue, or the writer continues in Hebrews two and one uh, on this subject to a degree, and the reason is 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 because he is trying to put Christ at the forefront of everything. And I was asked the other day about the Catholic institution, what they believe, and what you know what what's their basis. And there's a lot of error. The entire church or the entire institution is built upon error, um, salvational error, and and part of it is their um, their lowering of Christ or their elevating of Mary, their elevating of the saints, their elevating of angels, and uh, all of this uh, they they borrow. From some of some of it, the Jews, not the Mary portion of it, they they did that on their own. Um, but they they borrowed it much of it in their false and heretical teaching. Uh, Catholics aren't Christians, folks. They're not. They're not. If they believe what the that church teaches or that uh, ideologue teaches, they're lost, and um, they need God. Jesus is the only way, and I'll show you that here tonight in Hebrews 2. So it starts out with, therefore, therefore. So this is because of what has just been said concerning the Son. So what we've had in chapter 1, when you hear of therefore, uh, you need to look and see what it's there for, and the fact that it is referring back to what is previously stated what was previously stated was in chapter 1. It was the elevation and uh, teaching about the Son of God. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest. term earnest here would mean diligent. It would mean um, making an effort. It, it, may, it would mean to be the more earnest heed to the things that we have learned, lest at any time we let them slip. And so, uh, that's that's what it's showing here, okay? Uh, therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed. So, we should give great heed to the things that we have learned or heard. And that is, um, that, that's the teaching, the preaching that we've heard. So, in a way to not give in to slipping and and turning around and going back in the fight and in the faith is to give a more earnest heed. So it's one thing to listen. It is one thing to uh, pay attention to, but it's quite another thing to give heed. And to give heed would mean you obey, you follow. So give heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. The term slip here means drift away, okay? Uh, we should not worry that the words will slip away from us, but that we might fail to heed 
God's word, and he and we would slip or drift away from God. So, notice that's the concern. That's that's what uh, the writer is teaching. He's got a he's got a purpose. He's got a reason behind writing this book, and and it is to encourage the people of God to not slip, to not fail, to not fall. And the way to do that, give a more earnest heed to the things which you've heard. There's no substitute for Bible teaching and Bible preaching and keeping you close to God. Number one, in getting you to God, it's a requirement. Number two, in keeping you close to God. Okay? It's that important. It's that important. All right? Verse 2, for if the word spoken by angels was steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, so we've learned all of that, Uh, if if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, acts of disobedience uh, would face a just recompense of reward, we we know all of that. Verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and with divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. In other words, he's saying, look, the words of angels were steadfast. The words of angels we take into account. Uh, God would judge unrighteousness. So if all of that's the case and we believe it, then how much more of an earnest heed, how much more attention and detail and obedience do we and, and should we give to the Word of God and being obedient to it? Okay, verse 5. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. Look, he's going back to angels. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou hast visited him? Thou hast thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Now this is not in rank, this is in physical position. Okay? The angels work in the air, the angels uh battle in the air, they fight the principalities and powers that the Bible refers to in Ephesians. Well, to be lower than that, Jesus did not operate within the scope of the air while on earth. He operated as a man on foot and on donkey occasionally and on earth. So look at that. Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownedest him with glory and honor and did set him over the works of thy hands. So that shows you that he's not positionally in rank in order lower than the angels. It's just a physical thing. That's all that means right there. Because the fact says he has been set over the creation. Angels are part of the creation. The earth is part of the creation. You and I are part of the creation. The animal kingdom is part of the creation. Christ has been set by God over these things. Verse 8, thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. When something is under one's feet, that is referring to their authority and the authority uh, that is has been given to them and granted to, to an individual. 
And so Christ has authority given and granted to him by God. Thou hast put all things under him. But we see Jesus. That's wonderful. That's beautiful. Verse number nine. But we see Jesus. That's that's the entire theme of this message, of this lesson, of this teaching, of this book of Hebrews. But we see Jesus. The Hebrew writer is going to spend the entire time of this book explaining how much better Jesus is than anything else in this world, okay? And so he proclaims, but we see Jesus. That's that's what I want. That's how I want you to talk. That's how I want you to think. No matter what goes on, no matter what takes place, no matter what happens, I want you to refer back to, but we see Jesus. Whatever happens in your life, but we see Jesus. Live by that, but we see Jesus. Who was made a little lower than the angels. That simply means he was human. For the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God should taste death for every man. Now, for some of you that have been exposed to Calvinism, predestination, election, however you want to call it, there's there's a vast variety of names given to it, but it essentially is a belief that Christ predestined some to heaven, some to hell, based on a limited atonement, because if he died for all, then he saved all. Well, verse number nine clears that false teaching completely up. He tasted death for every man. Verse nine, Hebrews two nine. I I, I know people. I know. Well, I don't care. I mean, it's always it's. I'm, I'm always going to do it, and folks have always felt like that. But uh, they they always aren't aren't crazy about me calling out false doctrine, whether it's you know whatever it is, whether it's the Catholics or uh, watered down Catholics or Calvinist. And I'm telling you, it is a damning it is a damning theology and in, in teaching to teach that some are predestinated and 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 not or not to hell. Fact, what that does is it turns me it makes twofold more the child of hell out of many, many people. Because they think there's no need for salvation, no need for being born again. If I'm predestinated, then I'm it's gonna happen. If not, it ain't. So we, we can understand and see how it's a doctrine and a teaching of the devil. Well, verse number ten, for it became him. For whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory. Do you see that? He tasted death for every man, but he brings many sons into glory. So that means every man's not saved, and everyone that he dies for doesn't get saved. But many do. Most don't. Now, I will say, don't make, don't upset, let that upset you. The Bible teaches in, in the parable of the sower that one in four that actually heard the word of God got saved. Jesus had 12. One of them was a devil. Okay? 
So understanding that, verse 9 says we he tastes death for every man. Verse 10 says he brings many sons into glory. So many's not all. To make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. That means complete. He's at the captain of our salvation. He leads the way, leads the charge to our salvation. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Boy, that's wonderful. That's that's so beautiful. You might be ashamed to call them brethren. Some of the brethren might be ashamed to call me brethren. But I can tell you this, he's not ashamed to call any of us brethren. How about that? How about that? That helped me. I remember, uh, I'm going to tell you, there are a few things in life more shameful that there, or bring about more shame than divorce in your life. I, I mean, I, I've done a lot of things that, that I'm not proud of. But I don't think I lived with as much uh, public shame as as when I had an unwanted and unsolicited and just an undesired divorce upon me, and it, it was it's just awful to be in public. You know, you just just a, a very shameful thing. And the fact of the matter is, is the Word of God said He's not ashamed to call them brethren. And so you may feel shame over things in your life, something that's occurred, some decision you've made, some decision someone's made for you. But the Bible says if you're saved, he's not ashamed to call you brethren. He's not ashamed to be called one of his. A lot of people might be ashamed of you. Uh, A lot of people might have told you they were ashamed of you. He's not ashamed to call you brethren, not if you're saved. So verse 11, he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church while I sing praise unto thee. How about that? There's your good Bible word, the church. Notice it's lowercase. Why does that matter? Why does a lowercase c matter on the church? Because... It is not speaking of an ecumenical worldwide church. It is speaking of an individual local church, okay, with no name nor title given. And I know it's seemingly small to a lot of people. I know it's semantics and just, you know, uh, to, to others. But a capitalization, when you're saying the church, now if you're saying Bethany Baptist Church or Emmanuel Baptist Church, that is a title of, of the institution or, the, or the, the title of, the, of the, the gathering, the title of the church, okay, of the individual local church. But when you're just referring to the church, uh, the church of the living God, this is our church, it should never be capitalized because it is not some kind of ecumenical uh, spirit 
congregation. It is a local, visible body of believers. There's The term church comes from ecclesia. Ecclesia is an assembly. Okay? It is a group of people that have assembled together. Whether you assemble in a coffee house, whether you assemble in a... Uh, a cathedral, whether you s- assemble in a a more structured building with choir lofts and stages or platforms, whether you assemble in a warehouse, whether you assemble in a jailhouse, whether you assemble in a dining room. When you assemble and you have two church ordinances or two ordinances being baptism in the Lord's Supper, and you come together in his name, guess what you've got? You've got a church. It doesn't matter if it's registered with the government. It doesn't matter if it's, if it's, uh, if it's you know, in the directory in town. When you've got assembly, the t- that's what it means, folks. Me and Kevin were talking about the other day, the thing with the building... I've preached it for two years till I'm blue in the face almost. I'm trying to get through to folks to understand the church is not a building. If the early church would have said, I'm going down to the church, honey, I'll be back later. Mrs. John, I'll be back in a little bit. Mrs. Peter, honey, Peter, I'll be back in a little bit. I'm going down to the church. They would have looked at you like you were you had three heads. Why? Because no one knew the church as a building. They knew the church as a group, an assembly, and a body of people that had assembled together to worship and to learn about God, to learn about Christ. And that is that was my heart. That was my my goal, that was my objective in, in starting and establishing Bethany. It was not to be like everybody else. It was not to have everything every other quote-unquote church or assembly did and had. If that was the case, then just, just do that. Go Go be part of that. And I know a lot of people came along and wanted to come along because, you know, they appreciated me or appreciated my preaching. Maybe had other friends that chose to do so. But my objective is to have something completely biblical, completely organic. And that's the fact that whether we're meeting at a nurse or a a coffee shop or uh, an assembly hall or a, a building just designed for that, wherever we're meeting, we are the church, not the building we're going to. And I'm never going to go in a different direction. I'm not. If I'm, if I'm pastoring and leading and, and doing the work of God and, and, and the one preaching and, and heading this thing up, I'm not going in the direction of tradition. I, I've tried to make that clear. Now, that doesn't mean we won't have some kind of permanent established building at some point. But the fact of the matter is, is that's not what the church is. That's the least of a concern that people should have. The greatest concern that people should have should be, 
Am I obeying Christ? Is, is what is being taught and preached from the Bible? Are we, are we operating in a scriptural manner, not in what I have pictured in my mind of what quote-unquote church should be? I don't want church to, to... Listen, church has failed communities and church has failed society Churches failed people, and and so I'm not interested in that. I want to do it according to how the Bible teaches. And so, what the Bible says here, I will sing thy praise in the midst of the church. That's the congregation, assembly of people. Will I sing praise unto thee? Whether there's a choir, whether there's a special, we can sing. Praise unto him in the midst of the church. Aren't you glad we got a Bible? You don't have to go by tradition. Man, that's so good. Verse number 13. Then again, I will put my trust in him. Put my trust in Christ. That's who it's referring to. I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children which God hath given me. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. That's speaking of Christ coming in human flesh, coming as a human. Just as we're flesh and blood, he came as flesh and blood himself. Uh, To do the same that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. So, Devil, the devil had kind of the authority. He kind of um, had the power over death, but but God has uh, addressed that, and Christ has the power of the de- over the devil. Verse fifteen, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels. So you see that Christ was not an angel. He did not take on the nature of an angel. But he took on him the seed of Abraham. Okay, so he came as a human. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. That's beautiful. What that teaches us, do you remember me teaching the message, does Jesus really care? And he can be merciful and faithful to you and I because he came as a human to experience the human existence so he can show us how we can live it, be tempted in all points as we are yet without sin. So it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that it might be made a merciful and faithful high priest. So, the people of God, though redeemed and pardoned and reconciled, and they're forever freed from the condemnation of sin, we're still exposed to temptation, and we're very likely to sin. So, to meet this need, God has provided for his people a merciful and a faithful high priest who makes reconciliation or propitiation for their sins, except for this, the people of God cannot come into his presence for worship. We don't need a priest. We don't need 
uh, a fella that dresses like mama and he calls himself papa. We don't need to speak to a knot head through a knot hole in a piece of wood. We've got a great high priest who is Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, whom we go to to make reconciliation and propitiation for our sins. Verse 18, For in that he himself hath suffered, being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Succor means to run to. It means to go to. So when we're tempted, do you know that the Bible, do you know, listen, you know the Bible does not one time say that God won't put more on you than you can handle. Do you know that? If I want you to find the verse. If you believe the Bible says that, find it and, and send it to me. It does not say that he would put more on us that, than we could handle. It says no temptation have, will come our way that would beset us without giving us a way of escape and a, and, a, and a means of an escape. Okay, that's what it says. And so that Bible says there that he is able to succor, to run to those that are tempted. So when temptation comes, okay, that Bible says he runs right to us to make amends, to make propitiation and covering for sin and to give us the strength and the ability to defeat temptation, just like he defeated temptation on the Mount of Temptation when Satan tried three times to defeat him. And all three times Christ defeated Satan with, for it is written, for it is written, for it is written with the word of God. That's why he runs to us. That's why he came in human form. That's why he's our great high priest. That's why he ever lives to make a intercession for us in order that we might be saved and saved forever. Hallelujah. Amen. Good night. God bless. I love you. Hebrews chapter 2.